I'm speaking to Da Viranani. She's an American nun in Chamyamyang Monastery in Yangon. She's there now. It's in the northern part of the city and checking in about how she's been doing and what's going on. So Da Viranani, thanks for joining us. And we are so grateful and appreciative to be able to hear your voice now. Joe, thank you very much for the kind invite. I'm very, very happy to be with you today. And very happy to be able to share outside what what I'm feeling and what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, as are we. So the first question is just, how are you? I'm fine and we're all fine. Um, in the monastery, we were protected by the Dhamma and by the fact that we just do our Dhamma business and our Dhamma work. And um, all is well here. You wouldn't know, actually, from the surface that anything has happened. The coronavirus has actually had a much more profound effect on our, really on our day-to-day life. Yeah. So before we get into more recent events, maybe you can just give a brief overview of how the coronavirus pandemic has impacted your life as a nun there and what you know of other nunneries and monasteries nearby. Yes, thank you. It's It's been a profound shift. Um, since early April last year, we have mostly been locked into the monastery with the exception of about a month and a half when we had yogis coming from local yogis coming and the monks were going out on alms rounds. But most of that time we've just been staying here. The monks are not going on their daily alms rounds in the morning. Uh, We do have some donors coming in, uh, but not so many. And we have no, no yogis. So (laughs) This is a meditation center and we're shut, basically. <laughs> we can go out if we need to, but really we're, came, we're keeping very, very close to home. Um, the nunneries in our neighborhood, of which there are very many, actually, there are lots of nunneries. Um, they are also not going on their bi-weekly alms rounds. They, they're depending on local donors for their sustenance. And it's a really a profound shift. Yeah, I can imagine. And do you feel comfortable talking about the last few days, how things have shifted again? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's not a lot to say. Because really here, you can't really tell anything's changed you know, from, from superficial outside appearances. Our day-to-day life has not changed in the least, so there, there's not much to say about what our outer lives have done in the last, you know, five days or so. Our inner lives, that's another story, but we can talk about that later. Yeah. So on this podcast, we've talked to a number of practitioners, Burmese, 
practitioners, foreigners living in Myanmar, you're definitely very high up there on the list to want to get your spiritual biography and and your background in Myanmar. This is obviously not the talk we're having now, but you're not someone who just happened to land in Myanmar in the last several months or year. This is a country that has been intertwined with your life. So I'm wondering, in absence of a two-hour interview where we get to explore that at our leisure, if you can give us a two-minute or five-minute just background before we go into more information about what role this country has played in your life, what time you have spent here, what your relationship to the country and the people are. Sure. The short backstory is um, in a previous life, in this life, I was a conservation biologist. And... um, there were some profound changes that happened, and I started doing a lot of intensive practice, mostly in the Ajahn Chah tradition, and then got the chance to sit with Mahasi or with Upandita and was so taken by the Mahasi practice. So at that point, I came here to Burma to practice and take a temporary ordination. I'd taken two temporary ordinations before, but this one was different. And at the end of my retreat, I decided to keep keep the robes. And that was in 2005, 2006, the winter of 2005 and 2006. Um, since then, mostly I've been coming and going from uh, Chanmimiang, Yekta, the site out here, site out Uindika. I really like so much because he... He practices and teaches a lot of metta bhavana along with vipassana bhavana. And that's really a profound shift in terms of how the practice unfolds. With, and the fact that, that this is within the Mahasi tradition, it just it's a perfect fit for me. So since 2007, I've been staying here, sometimes for very long periods, sometimes for six months at a time. And since 2015, we've been teaching and sharing metta with foreign yogis every January and February. So we have a foreign metta retreat, foreign yogis metta retreat um, for a month every January and February. Um, Of course, (laughs) that's not happening right now, but that would normally be happening even as we speak. And then the other thing that we do that I've been very involved with since Cyclone Nargis in 2008 is to support local nunneries and people really in need of support with with Donna that we bring in from outside. And we call ourselves Metta in Action. So each year we've been offering uh, a substantial amount to nunneries, monastic schools, clinics, uh, education water projects, solar electricity, many things of that sort. Right. Thank you. Um, Can you put into any words what Myanmar as a country, as a culture, as a people, what it's meant to you personally, all the time that you've spent here and how it's impacted you? How, How have you been touched by this country? That's a wonderful question. And in a few words, it's very difficult because it's so deep. Um. This country is this a huge paradox of dark and light, and there's so much beauty in the people, in the culture, and of course in the teaching of the Dhamma, which is Myanmar has been the source of 
the Vipassana teachings and metta teachings that have gone out to the world through the Mahasi lineage. And so there's a deep, deep appreciation of the culture and the people and a deep sense of, of gratitude for what I've personally received in terms of my own practice and support for my practice, as well as, you know, the world has received this amazing Dhamma gift. So I can't wrap words around that. It's just a deep and profound debt of gratitude for what, what has come out of this beautiful place. Right. Yeah, me too. Um, as I'm talking to you, I feel like I'm something of a stand-in for all of the meditators. Excuse, excuse me. I knew I was going to break. I didn't know how early it was going to be. I don't know how many times it's going to be either. I feel like I'm something of a stand-in for all of the meditators that are listening to this around the world. Grateful mm -hmm. to have a chance to talk to you and to hear someone whose lives have been touched as ours have that is in the place right now and able to speak to us about what's happening and how you're feeling and, um, and how your practice is supporting you. Most importantly, you know, yeah. I, um, I, I don't know how much people listening have had similar experiences as me this past week, but you know, I haven't been sleeping or eating much and, um, I've gone through a range of emotions. Someone, another meditator said he was going through the, the cycles of grief. I've, I've been upset, obviously. I've been very, very sad. I've been, as you can see now, near breaking into tears or breaking into tears at the slightest thing. I guess where this is coming to a question is um, as a meditative practitioner who has this debt of gratitude to the Golden Land, who spiritual practice and life transformation have been formed and shaped by the imperfect you know, as you say, paradoxical part of this culture, but still gratitude nonetheless. As a meditator practitioner, um, what do I do now? You know, these are questions that are going through a lot of our minds. What, what, what is my role as a meditator at this moment? And there's no exact answer to that. It's a really difficult question that brings up a lot of other elements and backgrounds, but it's a, it's a question I want to ask to you to speak to the meditators and even the non-meditators listening in for wanting to know what it is they can do. What, what words would you have for that? I can only share what I've been doing. It seems to work. Uh, for which I'm very grateful that the, the Dhamma is an amazing umbrella of safety. First, remember to breathe. Feel the body. Feel the body being okay in this moment. You know, because we're so triggered, especially when we're so triggered, there can be a global sense of danger that actually isn't necessarily true in the moment. So I remember to breathe and to remember to breathe. And deep breaths. And really feel feel the body. And, and realign to the present moment. 
wherever you are. And then to understand, and this can take a, a form of a quick reflection that samsara is not supposed to work. Yeah. It just, it isn't that way. And so when it behaves this way, as it is, it's just being normal. And this, the same with coronavirus. I mean, we live, all of us, on the edge of extinction because we arise and pass away just like every moment does. And that is uncontrollable and unknowable. When that happens, what will happen next? And knowing this paradox of dark and light is so important because the first noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha. Dukkha meaning unsatisfactory, uncontrollable, unpredictable, like a cancer, like a plague, like an affliction. If you go into the texts, there are 40 different allegories for dukkha. And they're all very like that, very in your face, very intense. This is dukkha. And so we're living in an intense dukkha time. How not to drown in the reaction to that is the important thing. Really, really letting it in. This is the first noble truth. This is the doorway to freedom and the very place of practice. What are we feeling right now? What, how are we responding to what comes in? And so to breathe into that and to feel it and to feel it in the way that allows us not to drown in it. So to really be present for physical sensation and to understanding, oh, this is anger. This is despair. This is depression. This is powerlessness. This is feeling hopeless. This is whatever it is we're feeling. This is fear. And if it gets too intense to really back off and incline to what is present in day-to-day -day existence, that is pleasant. And it's so easy to drown in the unpleasant and the difficult. We tend to have an obsessive compulsive disorder about just paying attention to that. And it comes from our evolutionary heritage. But they're also, the sky is still blue, the leaves are still green, nature is outside, the birds are singing, the sun's coming up and going down, there's sunsets and sunrises, flowers are blooming. You know, there are pleasant things happening even now. And to notice this as well as and hold it in the same, in this, this same moment as everything else really helps, really helps to, to keep from drowning. And then, of course, there is always, and extremely important, there is always metta bhavana, cultivating loving kindness. Beginning where it's easy, don't go to where it might be difficult. So begin with yourself. And begin with yourself and everything you're feeling. And really hold it in a tender, tender container. And then expanding outwards to include the whole world including this country, including the afflicted people, including the generals, everybody. And so to radiate loving kindness 
for for this country can be held in may all beings be well, happy, and peaceful. You don't even have to go too close to the country because it might trigger something. So may I be well, happy, and peaceful. May all beings be well, happy, and peaceful. That will help re-incline and balance the mind. And the energy of that has an effect. So all of these things together create a sense of balance that holds the pain and then the immense difficulty, but also includes it, you know, and, and allows us a place to stand in that that is uh, less precarious and less difficult. Thank you. Those are good words for all of us right now. May I ask in this past week how your own practice has been? <laughs> I chuckled because I am doing, I, I think I'm wearing a groove in my corridor outside my room for and I've been doing a lot of walking meditation. Um, because when I'm, when things are difficult and there's a lot of energy flying around, I tend to do better walking meditation than sitting meditation. So I've been doing a lot of walking. And it's all been meta practice. Mostly. I mean, of course, some vipassana, some some sense of what I'm feeling, but well, happy, peaceful, well, happy, peaceful, well, happy, peaceful over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And um, I actually think I'm having an easier time of it than than people outside who love this country. Because the sense of hopelessness and despair that's here is one thing, but the sense of being so far away and not knowing what's happening and not being able to 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 connect or to help or do anything is much adds a level of difficulty that that I don't feel because I'm here. And so so yeah, that that it's really hard to be far away. And that's where the meta really comes in, Joa, because it's so powerful and so intangible. Space and time don't exist when we radiate meta. It just goes out. And even to say it goes out is, is a construct. It just, it's there it is. And it's such a powerful act that seems in the moment that uh, just intangible and oh, so what good is this? But we, we can't tell where the ripples go of when we cultivate metta. So to keep cultivating metta for this, for us, for everyone here, for everyone in the world, because this country is not the only place where they're suffering right now in this moment, you know, so um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. For those meditators who are, in fact, drowning with those emotions, drowning with helplessness, with being far away, with not knowing what to do mm-hmm. or respond, um, I, my own emotion of choice, I've been drowning in is sorrow. I've, um, mm-hmm. I've, as I mentioned, I've just been on the verge of tears. Um, there's pictures, images, videos that I've seen this past week that 
every time I see him, I get triggered. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not the kind of person who cries easily. I don't can't remember the last time any movie made me tear up and somehow this has just had my mm. number. Um, and I have, I have been just a moment away at any time of, um, of that sorrow coming for others. It might be anger. Um, some people might be absolutely right. fatigued okay. beyond belief. Uh, there, there could be other, other meditators could be responding with different kinds of, clouds and storms and, um, and, and sinking and other, other things, but whatever it is there one is sinking into the question is when I'm so overwhelmed with this, how can I think of then moving on to send metta or practice insight, Vipassana or whatever else it is when we're in that state. And when the news and information we're getting is, is uh, propelling us further into that state or, or reinvigorating that state. What, what is it that we can right. do to acknowledge where we are and yet still find a way to move to the benefits of practice? Really good question. First is to feel what you feel and to understand that what you're feeling may be about what's happening now, but it may not be completely about what's happening now. Who knows? But to drop into that sorrow and to really honor it by feeling it, knowing it as it is, and not not suppressing it in any way. Um, so to allow tears to come, that's okay. And just breathe into that. And to be really careful at the same time of not reinforcing it by cultivating it. Grief is a strange emotion because when it begins to abate, we begin to panic a little bit. Panic's too strong a word, but we bring it back. The thoughts arise of what we, we grieve to keep the grief going. Because in the background, there can be this sense of, well, if, if I'm not grieving, I don't really love this. Mm -hmm. We do. We love this. And that's okay. The grief will come and go. Allow it to come, but also allow it to go. And it will come and go a million times a day. So to really surf those waves in terms of feeling them. And what uh, one thing I think is makes it easier for me is I'm not so connected to images, to video, to 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 whatever is coming out in terms of media coverage be really careful to modulate what you let in from that realm because that can be reinforcing the grief um, we want to know every possible thing we can but we can't control this by 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 knowing about it so modulate the amount of time you spend exposing your mind and heart to that because it's it's red hot. It's very, very difficult to let in. So after you've been exposed to that, take some time away to walk, to sit, to do whatever practice you can do to feel what you're feeling. 
be careful not to spend hours at a time, you know, looking for every, every video clip or every scrap of news because you can be re-traumatizing yourself over and over and over and over again by doing that. Um, and it doesn't change the situation and it doesn't help, help you kind of hold it either. So be careful about how much you let in and then process what you let in after you've let it in so that it doesn't build up. And when I say process, I, it's really just practice. Be with it, feel it, know it as it is. However you can be with that is, is, you know, is an important thing. So whether you sit on your cushion or go for a walk or do walking meditation, drop into the body with this grief. And you can even just say to yourself, feeling overwhelmed feels like this. And breathing into that, knowing it as it is, hmm. with a lot of kindness and a lot of awareness. Yeah. Sati and Metta are your friends right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 a huge challenge. But if you take these big feelings in very small bites, it's more digestible. Yeah, somehow in formal practice, I'm able to, after so many years of dedicating myself to the value of this, I'm able to drop into that in some kind of way and be with those feelings. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned about going for a walk today. I went for a walk and snow mountains about as far away as I could be from Myanmar and, uh, you know, blue skies, cold weather, wind, everything. And it felt great. And I also felt a little guilty, you know, also felt, um, it's been a weird thing. Cause I, I'm walking around this week in a state of gloom and I'm in a country that's completely unaffected by this. So I'm like going into, you know, supermarkets and doing whatever business there is. And, everyone's completely normal. And I feel like I'm, I'm just living in a parallel world of why, why can't you see all the things I'm seeing and, and feel this? Usually people in society are feeling that together. And, uh, and then going, going to take a walk was like, well, this is really great being in nature, but it was, it was also a feeling of, um, of guilt that, uh, you know, because these things I've been holding this week, and and it's been, it's been so new in the sense that I, it's it's such a heavy load to figure out how to process and how to work with, and so getting away for a day after being much more involved in a tune just kind of felt, I guess, a, a bit privileged. Yeah, well, we are, and that's you know that truth is not something to feel guilty about. The remembering. The beautiful Pali, it's just one phrase, kamasaka, all beings are owners of their actions. And understanding that things unfold because of kama, because of causes and conditions, and how complex all of that is, and how unknowable it all is. So who knows what tomorrow will bring? But we are all subject to kama, causes, and conditions. So any gloom we may feel about the way the world is, um, it doesn't help the situation. So be, to really be careful about being attached to our response to that, because we're not betraying a country we love 
and people we love by feeling gloomy on their account or um, by, by not feeling gloomy on their account. The gloom doesn't, the gloom is not the same as the metta, as the care, as what we, we feel for them that's wholesome. It's a stand-in. And so not to confuse the gloom with wholesome mind states. It's a sign of attachment to, to the way we want things to be. And, of course, in this situation, the way everybody wants things to be. Well, everybody, we know anyway. And so honoring that is important, but not getting caught in our grief. The guilt you feel is so interesting because that, that's a place to practice. That very place is the place to to pay attention because that is that is made up. That's something you're that is being created that's causing you suffering. And so to really notice that, oh, feeling guilty. And understanding, at least intellectually, that that's not of any benefit to anyone, not to you, not to anyone here. And it doesn't deny, you know, if you're not feeling guilty, if you allow the grief to pass, if you enjoy the snowy mountains, it doesn't mean you don't love this place. (laughs) The two can coexist. Right. And that's so freeing because then we can let grief go. It's okay that it goes. We still love what we love and we still work as best as we can for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So allow things to come and go and let them because that's Dhamma. That's the way things are. And, and we can work best for others from a state of balance and ease and safety. So you're in a safe place right now. Well, relatively, <laughs> you know, there, there are dangers there too, but relatively safe. And so a lot can be done from that safe place of practice and, you know, meta in deed, meta in speech, meta in thought. So using that platform of safety uh, for the welfare and benefit of all beings, and then allowing whatever feelings to come and then allowing them to go will will give you a really strong, balanced place from which to do your work. Right. And in listening to your talk, I'm realizing that there could be listeners that are tuning in here that this is perhaps the first Buddhist discourse or background of Buddhist meditation or thought that they've tapped into. We're talking a bit now to a meditator crowd that might have a practice and this is tapping into what they're already doing. But to speak to everyone for a moment, for those who have never had a practice before, who have never tried to practice, but are sympathetic towards the values and ideals you're putting out there, but don't exactly know how to put them into some kind of reality or in their life without having the work before. They don't have a bedrock of practice to fall back on. 
what uh, what might you say to them just hearing these ideas and wanting to put some of them into practice in even a light way? Is that possible for someone that has never meditated before? It's hard to put myself back in a place of remembering how that feels <laughs> because it's been a very long time. But to try even for a moment to rest back in what is, to allow things to come and go and feel that, know it for yourself, can be incredibly freeing. And to, under, to just understand for yourself this impermanence of suffering, you know, because we take it to be so big. But to just see for yourself in a moment what happens when you pay attention to pain, mental or physical? What happens when you don't feed it? You know, when you drop into presence, when you drop into being with something pleasant, does the pain stay or does it go? Take it as a scientific experiment of one. You know, look to see for yourself. If you want to be free from pain, want to be free from sorrow, grief, as the Buddha said, pain, lamentation, grief, and despair, start in a moment by paying attention and see how that feels. Start in a moment from really being present with the totality of what you're experiencing right now, both inner and outer. You know, look Look at the sky and notice seeing the blue sky. How does that feel? Even if you're feeling terrible. Notice how that changes your experience. If it changes your experience, look for yourself. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how, but to just really be present in a moment. And in another moment. And in another moment. Moment to moment to moment. Drop out of thinking into feeling and knowing. And knowing being very different from any intellectual knowing, but dropping into a visceral knowing of this very life and this very experience. Seeing what is it that it does and how do we create suffering out of that? Seeing that for yourself. This is a place of profound freedom that only can be seen and known for oneself. I can say things, but, but this is something you have to try for yourself and see. And to encourage people, there are so many opportunities for support in this now that didn't exist when I started to practice. I mean, you can go to apps that, you know, teach you how to meditate. Uh, there was none of that 30, 40 years ago. So to really uh, take advantage of any opportunities you can find to support you in being present. Because the world's a difficult place. There's no, absolutely no doubt about it. And it's only going to get more difficult. It's not going to get better in a moment. You know, things go up and down. And we can improve our conditions around us. But the bottom line is the world is messy and complicated. So finding an inner place of safety is up to each of us. So really to encourage every single person to rest back in the present moment and to hold it with really tender kindness 
the, the tender kindness of knowing and really, really being kind to yourself and touching each moment with kindness, that kind awareness that will allow everything to be here. And then see what happens. See for yourself what happens. Moving to another topic, there's in past several years, there's been discussion of engaged Buddhism. This has certainly been something quite important and valuable in looking at the past year in America with some of the situations that we faced in our culture and asking questions of to what extent should one's Dhamma practice and one's spirituality and Buddhist meditation be connected to the social issues of the outside world. And this is something that in our country, a lot of different meditation centers and monasteries and traditions have been grappling in their own way with how they're handling bias and racism and prejudice and our own social justice issues. Right now in Myanmar, there is a different set of questions as far as how, what extent does engage Buddhism go? What uh, What is the, inv- the proper involvement between one's meditation and spiritual practice with social justice and problems in the world? So what would you have to respond to that now? What do you, especially at this moment, this current turbulent moment in Myanmar history, what is the proper relationship between Dhamma practice for you, metta sounds like primarily, and also Vipassana, what is the proper relationship between that and any kind of engagement or concern for social justice movements? I'm a little schizophrenic in answering this question because I'm American, but I live here. So what I can say in terms of my impulses, my conditioned impulses about what I would be doing and what I have wanted to do all this last year, had I been in the States, I would have been out marching in the streets, quite literally. Um, But the situation here is different and the proper response is quite different. And the way it's held is quite different. Um, In terms of context, what what I certainly feel very free to say is we make such um, an artificial division between our formal practice and our daily life practice. But really, what's the difference? There's only our six sense doors happening at different speeds and different, different stuff coming in. So there's seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting, thinking. Whether we're sitting on our cushion or walking down the street or responding to whatever we see or hear. So there are only these ever, only ever these moments of sense contact coming in, whether we're on our cushion doing formal practice or doing formal walking practice or engaged in the world. So how it's held here is implicit. There is a clear assumption that if your practice has borne fruit, it will manifest in actions of speech 
and actions of body. So nobody does anything explicit or separate. There isn't like, okay, now we're going to do a social justice thing as Dhamma practitioners, because as Dhamma practitioners, that comes out with working on behalf of others. That's just a natural response as the practice deepens. So there is a trust that with deeper practice, action will happen. Of course, in the context of being here, there are limits to that. Yeah, so there are limits to to what we can do that is useful and safe. Um, Both are valuable. Action on behalf of others really is a risk no matter what. And so to find the courage to do whatever we can do, balancing that sense of, well, this will be useful. It might put me in danger, but this will be useful. Versus, well, <laughs> you know, if I did this, it wouldn't do any any good for the big, bigger situation, so there's no point. So to know what is useful and what isn't before you step over the line and act or speak. Um, And right now there's a ton of caution because we don't know what will unfold. And I certainly don't want to talk about politics here because it's, it's not my place and it, it endangers me. It endangers everybody in the monastery and in, in my wider community. But There is a sense here of people waiting to see and a really deep understanding that the more you practice, the more equanimity you have, the more equanimity you have, the more clear your action is just naturally and the more effective your action is naturally. So there's a deep trust of the practice to play out as um, skillful speech, skillful action in the world. So there isn't that explicit um, movement towards social justice on the part of Dhamma practitioners that I know anyway. I mean, I'm not talking for the whole country, of course. I have a limited limited, uh, uh, connection. But to, to... to the people, all the people that I'm tightly connected with, there nobody talks about that. There is just this natural knowing of if you have dhamma, you will act skillfully, and that will make a difference in the world. So, I mean, to probably need to edit out a lot of what I just said because it's useless words. But that 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 basic piece is the most important that I just spoke to. Um, freedom of heart and mind always translate as kusala deed and kusala action and kusala um, speech, wholesome speech and action in the world. And with the discernment to know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is useful and what is not useful. And that's the crux of all action, to, to understand that Wholesome versus unwholesome, what we feed and what we starve, whether it's useful or not, and whether we have metta, whether metta is what is 
propelling our speech and action out. It gives it the space to do that. And so without the need to do anything explicit, that's the way it's held here. And I know it's very, very different in the States. Um, and as I say, were I in the States, I would have been going to protests and, and you know, getting involved in, in supporting wholesome action and supporting change in the way that it's done there. It's just not the way it's done here. Right. And speaking about how things are done there, one of the things I'm finding as I follow the news is there's reporting on many sectors of the story, the politics, the history, the motivations, looking at different people's biography and such. One of the things you don't find as much is the role of the Dhamma, the role of spiritual practice. Of course, monastic society comes in. There's monks on either side of the aisle and the political motivations or leanings of monastics will come up in these reports. But really, the living spiritual practice of the Dhamma is something that is not really reported with these stories. And maybe it's not such a surprise in mainstream media, but that's also what we're covering here. That's why we're having this conversation is looking at where the Dhamma fits into this. But where my question goes is, as one is trying to understand as an outsider, what is happening in Myanmar right now? What kind of country Myanmar is about the culture, the people and everything else? When you're looking at all of these superficial elements of uh, how everything comes together, but if you're missing the component of the Dhamma and the core of that practice, what are you left with? How important do you feel it is to understand and gaining an understanding of the situation to make sure that one has a Dhamma component in the overall paradigm of what we're looking at. And when that's missing, what is lost? You can't see me, Joa, but I'm nodding along with you as you ask the question, because it's so true. Um, the Dhamma is so central to this culture and so not understood by the people who write about this place in the media from overseas, when they're writing about whatever, you know, we hear about outside. Um, so big political movements and all sorts of things get reported from a vacuum of understanding about Dhamma and a vacuum of understanding how incredibly important it is for this whole culture. It's, it's warp and weft. It's woven through the whole thing. Um, and these implicit assumptions about how the practice affects one's life aren't even understood, aren't, you know, they're not part of the conversation. And also not part of the conversation is the fact that it's complicated. And that understanding of complication is a very dharmic understanding, actually, because when you understand Dhamma, you understand samsara, and you understand the vagaries of samsara. You understand that things are complicated and not black and white, and uh, that conditions are very difficult, and that that lack of a black and white, you know, this is good and that's bad, that that honoring of complication is something that I really see is missing in 
what is written about this country and is what is written about the players that, you know, create the news that other people in the rest of the world uh, absorb about this country, the, the, the big players on both sides of the aisle. And so it's very easy to demonize certain people because of one thing or another, but that negates the very fact of this complication. And there's so much that we do not understand, not, not being here, not living here. And even I, as a foreigner, being here for a long time now, I know there are things about this culture I will never understand. So to not overlay my own ideas of right and wrong so rigidly on this is also an act of Dhamma. And that's also missing when you're reporting on a soapbox without understanding that. So the understanding of Dhamma is incredibly important, not only as it, it is part of warp and weft, weft of the culture, but also the understanding of how am I responding to this and overlaying my own ideas on this culture that to me is, is quite different from mine and holds values that are quite different from mine. Political values, social values, Dharma values. The Dharma values I resonate with. The rest is often a mystery. So, yes, you're right. <laughs> There's so much that gets left out. Um, it's a very two-dimensional view of this country that I read when I read something in the press from outside. And it frustrates me because they're just not getting it. So thank you for sharing this Dhamma aspect because it really needs to be taken into account. Both the, the implicit aspect of it as it plays out in everybody's day-to-day -day life, but also the understanding that we, we overlay our own views on something that is much more complicated than we're giving it credit for. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it's, and that's also, that's what this platform is for. And that's especially what for this, what this interview is for. That's this interview is looking at this situation with the one component that is always left out of the understanding when you see it portrayed to the world. And on that note, I want to talk a little bit about Metta. This is your core practice. This is your core teaching. This is one of the core teachings of your tradition. I want to give some background first, just a couple of personal stories, and then throw it over to you in context of those stories with what you see today. So the first story is concerns my visit about 10 years ago to Auschwitz concentration camp, being Jewish, having lost members of my family in the Holocaust. It was a very intense experience. It was more intense than I was expecting energetically. And I was touched that, and I was coming, I should say, I went to visit Auschwitz after uh, about a month or so of, of practice. So I, I was coming from a real bedrock of practice at that point. But I was touched that in addition to the fear that I actually felt in myself, which was surprising to me to feel that that fear and what today is a safe place, uh, and I don't feel I was projecting it. It came um, from the recesses of my mind. In addition to that, I felt some degree, not overwhelming, but some degree of meta, not just for the victims who looked like me and were related to me, but also for the perpetrators and for the incredible burden of evil and bad karma they caused on themselves to 
perpetuate this act. Um, the this was a historical thing. Of course, it's connected to who I am today and and anti-Semitism I face and whatnot. But it is a historical thing that has ended. The second anecdote relates to you actually. And my mother was on a meta retreat with you. Her meta was going very well. She was following all the, at least this is according to the story she told me later. Uh, she was following all the instructions you gave her and was progressing quite well and not having really any hangups and um, being able on, on the meta retreat, being able to, to just proceed smoothly with everything that, that you were telling her and that, that you were instructing and saying, oh, you know, there's no blocks, no blocks. Everything's fine. There's no person that, you know, this person was a little difficult, but it was okay. And the way she told the story, you kind of smiled at her and you said, you know, I think there is one person that you can, might have some difficulty with. And I was like, well, who, who was that? Like, you know, what are you talking about? And um, I, this was, I don't know, 2017 or something. And somehow the inference came that you were speaking about our former president, Donald Trump. And no offense to anyone with different political leanings, but uh, your instruction was to work on Meta for then President Trump, which my mom just recoiled and and uh, said, no, this is an impossibility. And you proceeded to have this discussion of the practice of sending Meta to Trump and your practice of, of your work of, of daily sending Meta to him. And so these two anecdotes lead to the role of Meta and what Meta is in the world today. And you let off this conversation by talking about who we send Meta to, and we might be sending Meta to people in Myanmar that are perpetrators to the injustice and the pain and the suffering that we feel. So I don't know what the question is in there. There's there's two anecdotes and then there's the current situation, but let me throw that over to you and see what where you would take that, that difficulty of sending Meta to, you know, to past Nazis to former President Trump and to the current perpetuate the, the current people who are perpetuating trauma today. How how does one do that? How one does it is just to do it. There's a very short answer to that. But it helps to understand that there isn't a duality here. It's not that we're standing in our little pure corner and they're standing in their little evil corner and they're always and forever uh, different than we. To understand the banality it's so banal, you know, evil. We can all be that. We all have the capacity. That could have been us. We might think not, but we don't know. We don't know what we're capable of, both wholesome and unwholesome. So to not put bad people in a bad person box and put us, the rest of us, in a good person box, um, is very both very freeing and both very freeing and very challenging because it's easier to be with that when you think, Oh, there, I just, I just don't get that. I'm, I would never do that. Well, maybe we never would, but they're also human beings. So to do that every day for beings who are creating suffering 
immense suffering in the world of all sorts, for me is a daily practice. And I can't say I succeed. Most days, actually, I don't at first, at least. But often I come around to that. You know, that's and it. That is happening more and more easier, more and more easily as the years go on. Yeah, at first I have the same response as your mom to to that person. <laughs> you know, it's like no way I can't radiate at the TM. But it's possible. And to everybody, not holding them as separate from us, but as together in this samsaric soup. And you know, we're all doing what we can do given karmic and conditions. So kamasaka, that's their idea of what a good thing to do is. It's not my idea, but may all beings be happy anyway. And that last word is such an important piece of it for me anyway, (laughs) because it honors difference. It honors the very fact that we can't control how others are. And the Buddha said explicitly, in the sutta on the two kinds of thought in the Majjhima there's wholesome and there's unwholesome, and people will do both. If you do not radiate metta to beings who are indulging in unwholesome speech and action, you are not following my teachings. That's what he said. And he was quite kind of in your face about it, about, you know, talking about what they could be doing. Uh, I invite everybody to go read that sutta. I won't say it here, but. It's in your face. So whatever people do, we radiate metta to them because they are the same as we are and we are the same as they are. There's no difference. Right. I think some people listening to this that don't may not have the depth of background in metta practice might have some question about, well, what's really the good of this? What what can this accomplish? On that note, we should mention that there is an event, a virtual event that we're looking to plan on February 14th to put a plug in for it to have Yay. a people, practitioners around the world on February 14th. Details are still being worked out, but to send and radiate Metta from wherever they are to Myanmar, to everyone in Myanmar. And the experience of doing so may be questioned by some as being, what is this really accomplishing? And you're just kind of sitting or maybe you're standing or walking, but some naysayers out there that are wondering what is really the effect of this? What, what good does any of this do? How would you respond to that? What is the good of everyone radiating metta every day? Everyone radiating more people radiating metta on one single day. What is the power of metta of what it can do in the world, especially <laughs> this time? Yeah. Yeah. First, to say by radiating metta, you're not denying the fact that people are doing unwholesome things. You know, some people say that. Oh, it's like uh, you know, that gives this person permission to. No, it doesn't. Not at all. But because people will do all sorts of things, the only thing we can control is how we respond. And to respond from metta is a place of of real power. Um, And what good it does, for starters, very pragmatically, 
is we don't get caught in our unwholesome response to whatever it is. We don't get caught in grief. We don't get caught in anger. We don't get caught in despair. And from that place, we can act and speak from a much more balanced place. And we're not adding to the hatred in the world by doing so. I know some people think to do work in social justice, one needs one's anger. And I would draw a line between righteous indignation and anger. We still know, even if we're radiating metta, what's wrong and what's right, <laughs> you know, and what's wholesome and what's not. You don't lose sight of that. And you don't lose sight of, of the terrible impact of unwholesome action on other people and how wrong that is. But we have to be able to act and speak anyway. So the to radiate metta altogether means that our actions and our speech collectively come from a place of love, not from a place of hate. And that is so much more powerful. Look at Gandhi. He changed Indian history by acting from that place and, and creating the conditions for millions of others to do the same thing. That's gone out of fashion now, but <laughs> but it still works. And not to forget that. And so to collectively come together to, to radiate metta, to connect with that, it helps us and also people here in an intangible way. You know, we're so invested in something we can touch and feel and see and that can be reported in the press. But there's an intangible element to the benefit of metta that you can't report about that you can't even see, but people feel. And to for people here to know that everybody is radiating metta to them is a powerful thing. And that can do a lot of good for people's, uh, to uplift people here. And that is so urgently needed right now is that kind of uplift because there's despair, there's hopelessness, um, there's anger, there, there, there's, you can imagine everything. So to uplift is what we can do, and that's incredibly valuable. Right. Do that leads me to another question. Do Burmese around you, do they know, are they aware of how people overseas are feeling their pain or supporting them or invested in the issue? Are they aware of that support taking place? And if so, how is that affecting them? The people right around me are aware because I tell them, but I, I can't answer that question in general. I just don't know. Um, I can tell you people around me when I say, oh, people outside are radiating metta, it brings a little light. Um, it brings some, that people are touched by that. It might not draw them out of whatever they're feeling, but there's, there's a, a a level of being touched that is, is really quite lovely. And it does help, you can see. You know, just to know you're not alone is a huge help. Even though you have to be the one going through this, you know. Uh, yeah. Right. So that is a way that we can be there right now to let right. people know exactly. that we are holding them in our mind. We're holding them in our practice. We're radiating metta. And the last question I have for exactly. you, I know that your lunch is fast approaching, is you had referenced a bit ago about 
a, you had quoted a story of uh, a sutta that had come to mind. And I wanted to, uh, to ask during this week, that, that, that was one sutta you mentioned, are there other suttas or references from the Pali Canon or some part of scripture, even something from a meditation teacher that you had? Is there, is there something that is reverberating and resonating in your mind, mm-hmm. especially with the events that have been going on this week, something that has taken on added importance, given you added strength or guidance, um, maybe several things, but what, what is, what from your past reading and instruction has been coming to you now and being of support? Mm. More, um, not so much support, but determination has been really on my for- the forefront of my 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 heart and mind. And the Buddha saying, "Bhikkhus, you know, all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are suffering. These are the roots of trees. Practice now, lest you regret it later." <laughs> that comes to mind definitely. I thought of that many times this week, and through the coronavirus, the same. You know, it's like, wow, this is. We can feed wholesome or we can feed unwholesome. And I have a choice right now. What am I going to do with this? And the second thing that comes to mind, a story that really resonates with me, that has been resonating with me this week and again through the coronavirus situation, is the story of the weaver's daughter, which is a beautiful story about a young girl who... um, Went, happened to, to witness the Buddha speaking in her village about the closeness of death. And she, de- she was determined, after having heard that, to really take that on as practice. So every day she reflected about death, how death is certain, how we don't know when it will come or where we will be or anything about that. Um, and she took that on as a daily practice. Some years later, the Buddha come, came back. About three years later, he came back. And um, she is a very long story. I won't tell the whole thing. But she, she went. She was unable to go at first to, to where he was. And he knew she was you know, she wanted to with his omniscient vision. He waited until she showed up. She was late because of uh, her work as the daughter of the weaver. She had work to do. And then he engaged her in a a bit of a, like, conversation, like a koan. It was like he was asking her questions and she was answering, and it was riddle-like. And all the people around were mumbling. It's like, well, she's being disrespectful. And, but she was directly answering his questions about her practice with death and how it had opened her completely to the way life is and had opened her in a way that was so balanced and free about the way life is. It's a beautiful story. And, of course, it... It has an ending. Some of these stories have endings that are quite intense. Um, It doesn't have a happy ending on a superficial level, but because her practice was so deep, 
It has a very happy ending. This freed her heart and mind. And so for all of us to understand our vulnerability and the vulnerability of everyone in this country, to take that in and know that that is the way things are. And the fact that this is happening shows us that vividly, that we can't count on things going right. That's not samsara. Um, so these two, these two things renew my determination to keep connecting with that so that my own reactivity doesn't, doesn't take me over so that I can stay balanced as much as I can with the way things are, which is really amazingly difficult, you know, on so many levels. So those are the two things that are sustaining me, the, the story of the weaver's daughter and really to, to deeply understand that this is the way things are. Um, and these are the roots of trees, and we all have to practice with this. This is the very place of our practice, and we have to do it now. <laughs> we have to do it now. And the, the last thing I would share is um, something the Buddha said that I come to again and again when I hit a wall internally because I can't honestly say I'm always successful or even half the time in staying balanced is the Buddha said very clearly, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So to take all of that together, to take his encouragement and his instruction to face our vulnerability and to know it's possible to be balanced with this and to just keep going one step at a time. That's what's resonating with me and that's what I'm doing. And that's what I would encourage everybody to do in your own way because that's all any of us can do in this world. We can't control it. But we can work with our own reactivity so that we can rest in a free place and act and speak from a free place. I really thank you for that. I thank you for your courage and vulnerability and wisdom in sharing. I think I speak for everyone listening, as I mentioned at the beginning, I feel something like a stand-in for however many meditators are listening, just hungry for anything that comes out of some Dhamma practitioner's experience of living there right now and being able to gain through your vision and experience what is happening and inform us. And I think you've just done an extraordinary service for, you know, for myself and for everyone listening to be able to tap into a country and a practice and a culture that is so important to all of us. Before we close here, I just want to ask if there were any other topics uh, that weren't addressed by the questions I asked, if there was any other thing you wanted to add to people listening in. No, Joe, nothing comes to mind. I mean, meta presence, just keep going one step at a time, that pretty much covers it, <laughs> pretty much covers it. And to understand that the world is the way it is. And each of us has the beautiful opportunity, but also the, the profound responsibility to learn how to act effectively and from a place of balance. So this is the practice that everybody is doing here, and this is the practice that we all need to learn how to do. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and your voice and wishing you very well for your practice and mm. for the area and the country that you're in. Joe, I thank you for having me. Thank you so much for this connection and just profound well-wishing coming from here out to all of you there. Uh, may you all be well and happy and at ease with the world the way it is. And thank you so much for your concern and kindness. I'll be honest. Not only is asking for donations my least favorite thing in the world, I find it pretty uncomfortable as well. Let's face it, after prioritizing my own meditation practice, my main passion is learning about these inspiring Brahmadama tales and finding a way to share them with a wider audience so that many more can appreciate them. My passion is not at all the unavoidable administrative stuff and certainly not the fundraising part of it. But unfortunately, we do have a minimum basic cost to keep our engine humming. So it's necessary for me to take a moment for that least favorite and uncomfortable thing and ask sincerely for your generosity in supporting our mission. If you found value in today's show and think that other meditators might as well, we ask that you take a moment to consider supporting our work. Thank you for taking the time to hear our spiel. And with that, it's off to work on the next episode. If you would like to join in our mission to share the Dhamma from the Golden Land more widely, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to sustaining the programming. You can give right on our website via credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation or through PayPal by going to paypal.me slash insightmyanmar. We also take donation through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. In all cases, simply search Insight Myanmar on each platform and you'll find our account. Alternatively, you can also visit our website for specific links to any of these respective accounts, or feel free to email us at info at insightmyanmar.org. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you for your kind consideration. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information at www.insightmyanmar.org. That's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we will ensure that it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in our discussions on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts by the same name, of Insight Myanmar. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at burmadama at gmail.com. That's B-U-R-M-A 
D-H-A-M-M-A at gmail.com, and we're also active on Wheel. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know, and we can share that forum here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would also like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible, especially our two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharnay. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. Dragos Bandita and Andre Francois produce original artwork. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come and share such powerful personal stories. Finally, we are immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, and excerpts of any episodes. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. As you know, our podcasts are 100% listener-supported. We welcome your contribution in any amount, denomination, and transfer method. You may give via Patreon at patreon.com slash insightmyanmar, via PayPal at paypal.me slash insightmyanmar, or by credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you'd like to give especially to support our new run of coronavirus episodes, please go on the GoFundMe site and search Insight Myanmar to find our campaign. If you are in Myanmar and would like to give a cash donation, please feel free to get in touch with us. Thanks, and see you next show.